0: I'm Brad.
1: And I'm Alyssa. And welcome to Strange
0: History, the podcast where we talk about, you guessed it, strange history. On today's episode, we will be discussing assassination attempts and a failed military coup. There's going to be a lot of harsh stuff in this episode, so trigger warnings for suicide, Nazism, and lots of violence. If at any point you feel it necessary to drop this class, just let us know. We won't judge. It's okay. Stuff hurts, and this stuff is painful to a lot of people. But if you want to hear about Nazis blowing themselves up and getting shot to pieces, go ahead and just stick around.
1: Episode 18. Not another Tom Cruise movie.
0: Starting in 1943, it was pretty painfully obvious that Germany's military might was on a steady decline. Fighting a war on all fronts had proven incredibly difficult and many members of the Nazi military hierarchy had started to question what their lives would be like post-war. Should Germany lose? The lead up to war and the things that occurred simply don't need to be discussed during this episode. We could literally devote an entire season to just the Second World War overall.
1: Which we won't, I promise.
0: Absolutely not. That is way too much work.
1: (laughs) It's not strange enough.
0: It's really not. There's some weird stuff that happens in World War Two, though.
1: Okay, but not now.
0: Um, no, uh, no it's, uh,
1: that's where I draw I my mean,
0: lines. I mean, yeah, we can draw some lines there, but like weird World War Two stuff, we're not going to cover it in any season. But if you are curious about some weird World War Two stuff. Look up the Japanese pilot that landed in a field in Oklahoma and declared war on the state of of, of uh, Oklahoma. I mean... Same. <laughs> <laughs> he came back in like the 1990s with his family sword and threatened to kill himself if the city didn't like... I don't know what was the word I'm looking for. Except his apology. He was just going to kill himself in City Central if they weren't like, oh no, it's totally okay that you Declared war <laughs> specifically on this just, one just state.
1: Just
0: Oklahoma. <laughs> Nonetheless though, in this episode, we will be discussing all the key players during the time frame of around 1943 to 1944. I do feel it necessary that due to some of the things that are going to be discussed, it is absolutely necessary to include not one, but two trigger warnings. Again, this week we'll be focusing on Nazi Germany, members of high command, an assassination attempt, and a coup. Literally any of these things could have changed the entire course of history and changed billions of lives. Now, by 1943, it was very obvious that Germany was no longer in a position to achieve any sort of easy victory. In northern Africa, a combined force of British and American troops had soundly defeated the Germans and Italians and brought a very swift end to the Africa campaign. Erwin Rommel, one of Hitler's most successful field marshals and commanders, had actually abandoned the campaign due to health reasons and had been replaced with an Italian general named Giovanni Messi. Messi?
1: Yeah, that sounds right.
0: That sounds right. What a horrible last name. Messi?
1: You know there's like a famous soccer player with that same last name, right?
0: I did not. I don't watch soccer. Oh,
1: there's like, He's huge.
0: I don't. I don't sports.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> in March of
0: 1943, the Allied First Army had crushed the last facet of resistance in Africa, but a total surrender would not be achieved until the 13th of May with the surrender of General Messi. <laughs> 2700 and. Jesus Christ, I can't math either apparently.
1: 275,000
0: Axis POWs were taken during the final surrender, and that certainly dampened any hope of a successful war effort from there on out. The loss of experienced troops allowed Allied forces to easily push through Africa and deep into Europe, forcing the Axis to try again to stalemate these troops. It was around this time that talks for an ultimate solution to the war had come about, spoken in hushed tones behind closed doors the most outspoken man who originally voiced opinion was Klaus von Stauffenberg. But as the war dragged on, more and more people on both sides died and others stepped forward and spoke of a desire to remove Hitler from power and to end the war as quickly as possible. You
1: know me I always has to do backgrounds on everybody. It's usually what I'm assigned. So we'll talk about Klaus a little bit. He was born in Jettingen, germany on november 15th 1907 so another scorpio king absolutely he belonged to stefan george's circle this was a german poet in the 19th century and he was a disciple of him for the rest of his life so really into poetry oh
0: same (laughs) must be a scorpio thing
1: he entered the german army in 1926 he became an officer cadet at 19 years old He went to a war academy in Berlin and then joined the general staff in 1938 as a quartermaster officer in General Erich Hoepner's 1st Light Division, renamed the 6th Panzer Division in November 1939. So, pretty high up there, basically. Uh, He won distinction as a staff officer with Panzer um, in campaigns in Poland and northern France between 1939 and 1940. He served in many combat positions in all of Hitler's major campaigns, so Sudetenland? That's right, right?
0: Sure. I've never heard that word before. Really? Seriously. Out of all the history classes I've taken, all the documentaries I've watched, I've never seen... Sudetenland. Sudetenland. I
1: have. Whatever. Poland, France, and Tunisia, which was about May of 1940 until January 1943. During Operation Bar.
0: Barbarossa.
1: Barbarossa, thank you, which was the code name for the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. Um, Stauffenberg became very shocked by the atrocities committed by the SS, the SD, and the security police, particularly the mass murder of Jews in Russia. He was appalled by the atrocities committed by the German army against Soviet prisoners of war and the treatment of civilian of the civilian population in Russia. He cited these matters to Major Joachim Kuhn in August 1942, but falling on deaf ears at this point. At this point, he requested to be transferred to the North African Campaign, and he served in the 10th Panzer Division in Field Marshal Erwin Rommel's African Corps. Stoffenberg was severely wounded during this campaign on April 7th, 1943 at... Sekbet. Thank you. There's a whole thing.
0: Sekbet and Newell.
1: Thanks which is south of Missoula, in in the North African desert, Allied fighters strapped his vehicle. He lost his left eye, right hand, and his ring and pinky finger on his left hand. When he was recovering from his wounds, that's when he decided to kill Hitler.
0: So this dude's just laying in (laughs) a hospital bed, and he's like, You know what I should do? I should just kill Hitler.
1: Pretty much. I mean, same. He spent the summer of 1942 trying to persuade other senior commanders to join him. Um, And not many were on board at this point. So he pretty much declared that he himself was prepared to kill
0: Hitler. And I'm sure that with the injuries he had, they probably just passed it all off as like, you know, dudes high on morphine. He doesn't know what he's saying. Mm
1: -hmm. Eventually, he did find some people who were on his side, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He assumed sort of a leadership role in this whole plot, as it's called. And in June of 1944, he had been promoted to colonel and was reassigned to the post of chief of staff to the Army Reserve Command. So this gave him direct access to all of these conferences, also known as briefing sessions, um, that were always attended, most of the time, attended by Hitler. So he was like, he was ready. He was right there.
0: Former Chief of Staff Ludwig Beck, Major General Henning von Treskow, Colonel General Friedrich Albright, and many others joined Stauffenberg and agreed to his ideology. And the men even managed to rope Erwin Rommel in towards the end. Rommel agreed that something needed to be done to quell hostilities, but opted out of helping further when he learned how the men behind what would be called Operation Valkyrie had planned. The plan was a military coup following the assassination of Adolf Hitler and his command staff. Hitler had already became very wary of assassination attempts up to that point, and because of his panic and paranoia, had become increasingly perplexed with his precarious position, and trying to protect his person, had stated precipitously had... Fuck. <laughs> There's too many P words. Let's try that one more time. Because of his panic and paranoia had become increasingly perplexed with his precarious position and trying to protect his person had started to precipitously change plans, trying to outplay any potential people willing to cause him harm.
1: I want you guys to know that Brad did that on purpose. I
0: absolutely did, and I could not stop myself. <laughs> now, because of Hitler's constant changing of plans, and I'm so sorry there are so many P words, he had already avoided many assassination attempts basically on accident and those he had not outright avoided had been thwarted by military or law enforcement personnel. Previous attempts to gather people to assassinate the Fuhrer or even attempt a political overthrow had always been met with controversy or even outright failure. In fact, so many in Nazi command were so on board with the idea that sometimes it was just discussed outright. For example, in 1942, Truskow had spoken with many of the field marshals in an attempt to garner support to assassinate or overthrow Hitler during his visit to the Army Group Center. Although a bomb was placed on Hitler's plane in 1943, it would fail to detonate. Another assassination attempt would take place in Berlin, once again orchestrated by Treskow. And even though many other field marshals and even senior officers knew of his involvement, no one said a thing. They didn't try to stop him either. We've already mentioned this Treskow guy quite a bit. Do you have any information on him, ready?
1: Oh, again, I love me a good background. <laughs> So he was born January 10th, 1901 in Magdeburg, Germany. When he was 16 years old, he volunteered to ser- and served in World War I, 1917 through 1918. Okay, when doing background on this guy, I used a couple different sources and they said a couple different things. So I will say multiple different things about him that don't necessarily line up and I don't know which one's true. So, in 1920, he left the army and began studying law. However, another source said that he became a stockbroker. The um, source that said he was studying law said that in 1924, he took over his father's estate in the Newmark region. But another source said that he rejoined the army in 1924. So, I don't know what he was doing. But regardless... By 1939, he had reached the rank of lieutenant colonel and was serving on the staff of Feder von Bach, which was his uncle. Which okay. sounds like nepotism, but I digress. Uh, at the AG Center headquarters. This same year, he was involved in the invasion of Poland and Czechoslovakia. He was very appalled by what the SS was doing and the Gestapo in all of these occupied territories during 1941. He criticized incapable commanders. He felt repelled by the ruthless conduct of war and was well informed about the crimes committed during uh, the partition crackdown by the Einsatzgruppen, or mobile killing units, Uh, the chief of the security of police and the SD. He witnessed the killings of captured Red Army soldiers, which was pretty close to his last straw. Like, that was it for him. Uh, At this point... That's, like I said, when he reached his thing, his, the whole thought of Hitler has to be overthrown. He's got to be killed. He's got to be taken out. We got to get rid of this guy. He tried to recruit others like his uncle, um, other army commanders like Gunther von Kluge, Erich von Mainstein, and Gerd von Rundstedt. Uh, they all refused, but they didn't snitch on him. They were like, no thanks, we'll keep this to ourselves, but no thanks.
0: Really stand-up guys there, huh?
1: I mean, they didn't, he would have yeah. been killed on the spot. Yeah. So, at and least they had... And
0: then they probably would have been killed just for knowing that there was a plot to kill Hitler.
1: Yeah, so at least they were like, I don't know, chill, as you can be as a Nazi who didn't care what Hitler was doing. Um, in 1942, he'd been promoted to colonel in the general staff, and then a year later, he was transferred to the Furs Reserve.
0: Which we're going to talk about later. Cool. In March
1: of 1943, like Brad mentioned, he tried many assassination attempts. So in March 1943, Trescal partnered up with Fabian. Oh, wow. Yeah, what a last name.
0: Schnappeldorf? No. Schlemmerndorf. Sure. Sounds a doodle.
1: <laughs> they put a bomb on a plane which was flying Hitler to.
0: Smolensnack. Mm-hmm. That one actually sounded right. I think it... I got that right. Okay. Okay.
1: Um, but the detonator malfunctioned and the bomb failed to go off. Thankfully, he remained undetected and he was actually named Chief of Staff the following September, but uh, into the Second Army. He <laughs> had <laughs> <laughs> no idea he was trying to do this and he just kept moving up the ranks. He's actually the one who had recruited Klaus von Stauffenberg that I talked about earlier in 1942. Um, and he was the one chosen to plant the infamous bomb, which we will get to uh, about the July plot. And do you want me to say that last part? you to wait for that last I'll part. We'll wait for that part. We'll wait for that. Because
0: I, I find that to be one of the most interesting
1: okay, we'll parts save. We'll of we'll the, save it.
0: the way all of this, you know, ends. In the July plot was to, of course, remove Hitler from power. However, the individuals wanted this end for a variety of different reasons. A large majority of the original group were labeled as conservative nationalists, or those who who wish to uphold national and cultural identity and usually combine their ideals with traditional family values and a strong opposition to immigration. Many were not in this for their homelands, but for themselves. Many of the conspirators were from aristocratic, noble, or pedigree backgrounds. They had originally favored the Nazi Party, but had fallen out of favor with the party when their influence began to fall. Others, like Stauffenberg, believed that various war crimes committed by Nazi Germany were unbecoming of the nation and her people, and just simply wanted the atrocities to end people from all political backgrounds aligned with at least one of the viewpoints presented during the July plot, and the group had a good mix of political parties participating. There's so many keywords. Oh my god. (laughs) Now I'm doing it on just accident, good god. Um, some of the political parties you could find were communists, liberal and social democrats, conservatives, and even those who had no political affiliations.
1: Uh, I don't think you need a political affiliation to know that Hitler was fucked up.
0: You're not wrong. (laughs) You're not wrong. The plan was not as cut and dry as just kill Hitler, but was much more nuanced, with formal papers and treaties even being planned in the event that the plot was successful. A commonly agreed-upon idea was the establishment of Germany's 1914 borders with France, Poland, and Belgium although it was incredibly doubtful that the Allies would have accepted such a massive shift of political boundaries so easily. Some plotters believed that the Allies would be quicker to accept terms if they offered Poland back to the Pollux. But others agreed that a symbolic occupation of Poland was essential to any plan that they had crafted. It was then brought to light that the German Replacement Army actually had an entire contingency plan in the event that German high command was destroyed or unable to perform their jobs. Albright was the one who suggested that the replacement army be used to stage a coup. Treskow agreed and began revising their original plan to suit their needs. Amongst the new plan was a pamphlet that simply read the following. The Fuhrer Adolf Hitler is dead. A treacherous group of party leaders has attempted to exploit the situation by attacking our embattled soldiers from the rear in order to seize power for themselves. Kind of sounds like they just came up with a plan and were like what if we just blamed all of this on someone else
1: I mean it it makes sense they had all the people who were involved I don't know if you're going to talk about this or not all the people who were involved had a plan of who was going to take over once Hitler and all these high command officers were dead
0: yeah it was incredibly detail oriented
1: I mean you you had to be yeah
0: Various and highly detailed instructions were written and given to everyone from radio operators and telephone offices to government offices and military outposts and even concentration camps. And after I wrote this script, I found out that Hitler's left-hand man, Henrik Heimler, also received a copy of this and said absolutely nothing. Yeah. It's insane. I
1: I said, yeah, like I knew that, but you told me that before,
0: (laughs) so. Operation Valkyrie now only had one source of opposition, General Friedrich Fromm, the current commander of the replacement army and a very hardcore supporter of Hitler. He would need to be won over or simply eliminated before the plan could progress. Another hurdle in the plan was the fact that Hitler had become so paranoid he hadn't visited Berlin in months, preferring to spend most of his time in the Wolf's Lair, a highly reinforced headquarters in East Prussia. In that instance, he was always heavily guarded and eventually started to only see individuals he trusted wholeheartedly. Heinrich Himmler, the commander of the Waffen-SS F- Waffen and Gestapo secret police, and the man who controlled the establishment of concentration camps, had became increasingly concerned about Hitler's inner circle, and rightfully so, as this is where the majority of the discontent and assassination attempts stemmed from. By 1944, the Gestapo investigations had started to draw clear lines between the plotters and previous assassination attempts, and Gestapo leaders began to close in on several of those involved with the plan. During the rigid investigations, however, the main group members were still in constant contact with one another. Heimler himself was even once approached by a member of the German resistance, a man named Johannes Poppitz. He was the chief financial officer for Prussia. During this meeting, Poppitz declared his support for the German resistance movement and even stated his intent to displace Hitler to end the war early, through not force, but political channels. The meeting would end with no real excitement other than the arrest and eventual execution of Poppitz. But Himmler never attempted to track down the rest of the network, even though he now knew they were operating within the German government. Perhaps he never tried to track down conspirators because he knew the war was unwinnable. Maybe he just didn't care. Despite trying to get Heimler on board, however, it became clear that that many members of the plot did not want the ruthless and evil SS chief to become the next leader of Germany. So plans were amended again to ensure his death, as well as Hitler's. And in the words of Treskow, kut kut, or whatever the cost. Because of this change, the first attempts to assassinate Hitler by the group were simply aborted due to Heimler not being present.
1: I didn't mean to clear my throat so loud. (laughs) Sorry. So as Brad said before, this is called the July plot or Operation Valkyrie. But before we get to the month of July, there were many attempts um, by the group to assassinate Hitler. On June 7th, 1944, Stauffenberg had attempted to detonate a bomb in a meeting at Berghoff, But his other conspirators wouldn't give him total approval because Himmler and Ermin goring weren't there. And they wanted to get rid of that high command. On July 11th, Stauffenberg brought a bomb that was hidden in a briefcase with him as he was attending a briefing at Hitler's Berghoff residence again, but circumstances beyond his control, whatever that means, had prevented him from doing so. Earlier that year in March, uh, March 11th, 1944, Captain Erbhard von Britenbuck sure, Sure, that looks right. <laughs> uh, showed up with a concealed pistol in hopes of assassinating Hitler, but the guards wouldn't allow him to enter the same room as Hitler, which is, I mean, yeah, obviously, I don't know why I tried that. Doing math, sorry. On the, <laughs> on the 15th <laughs> of July, uh, Stauffenberg flew to the Wolfslayer's headquarters with Captain Frederick Karl Klausing, who was a co-conspirator, And they had the intention of leaving a bomb in one of the briefing meetings with Hitler. This attempt was again called off by senior conspirators in Berlin due to the absence of Himmler and Luftwaffe Air Marshal Hermann Göring. Again, wanting to get rid of that high command. Stauffenberg, though, had secretly agreed with his close friend and co-conspirator, Colonel Albrecht von Mertz, to try and kill Hitler anyway. However, when he returned to the meeting room, the meeting had already ended only after five minutes. (laughs) Wow. A five-minute meeting. That's all.
0: In the first week of July, Stauffenberg would be promoted to Chief of Staff to General Fromm, and this would give him access to Hitler's military events there at Blair. His new proximity to even more members of high command meant new allies as well, such as General Karl Heinrich von Stupelnagel. Stupelnagel. Nagel. Stupelnagel. Sure. Sounds like Zandl's last name. <laughs> yeah. Schopenagel. yeah. Schopenagel, The commander of German forces in Paris. When, with all plans finalized and put into motion, all that was needed now was just time and luck. And as luck would have it, July 20th is the greatest time ever to commit crimes. Schaffenberg once again flew to the Wolf Slayer for a meeting with a timed explosive hidden inside his briefcase. At 12.30 p.m., Stauffenberg asked for a washroom to change his shirt, stating that it was soaked with sweat. And it was. This drew no suspicion it was a very, very hot day. While inside the restroom, he inserted a detonator into a brick of 2.2 pounds of plastic explosives, and he started to go ahead and just prep another one. Unfortunately, due to the injuries that Alyssa mentioned earlier, it's a very slow and painful process and he was in the bathroom for so long that eventually a guard just knocked to make sure he was okay and to also inform him that the meeting was getting ready to start. This meant that Stauffenberg did not have time to actually ready that second explosive, but he would be led to a room holding Hitler himself and close to 20 others. But Heimler was not present again. Nevertheless, the plan would move forward. Stauffenberg placed the explosive-filled briefcase under the table and scooted it close to Hitler. After a few minutes, he excused himself to take a phone call. Now there are many, many things that could have happened next. And really, we are unaware of what really did transpire. The most common idea amongst historians today is that Colonel, he- Colonel Heinz Brunt, an officer standing close to Hitler, used his foot to move the case behind a table leg in the car. This one small act of moving the briefcase just a few feet to a few inches away meant that when it detonated just a few minutes later at 12.42 p.m., that Hitler was spared with no injuries other than a busted eardrum. Stauffenberg had fled the lair with the help of his aide, Werner von Haeften, and by 1 p.m. was in the air in a plane provided by General Wagner. Stauffenberg and all other plotters had fully believed that Hitler was dead. By 4 o'clock p.m., the plan was fully in motion. The military governor of France had managed to disarm the SS and SD. I had never heard of the SD until doing research for this, but it's the German Intelligence Division, similar to, like, MI6 or the CIA. And he'd captured most of their leadership in one swoop and had already arranged contact with Allied forces. But before the meeting could take place, another man informed him of the very simple truth. Hitler lived. In less than 40 minutes, the plot began to fall apart. Fromm, attempting to save himself, issued an arrest warrant for Stauffenberg and switched sides. Thankfully, he did this when he was alone and attempted to arrest Stauffenberg himself. This did not go as planned. He got the shit beat out of him and was held at gunpoint by Stauffenberg and Albright, whom demoted From and then promoted General Erich Hoepner to take over any and all duties performed by the former General Fromm. By 7 p.m., Hitler had recovered enough to make phone calls and alerted his right-hand man, Joseph Goebbels, head of propaganda, as to what had occurred. Goebbels immediately transferred Hitler to Major Remmer, the commander of the troops tasked with the defense of the ministry in Berlin. Remmer's troops had occupied ministry grounds and that of the Block but orders were stated to not go inside. As his troops began to deal with the chaos and reorganize the city, plotters started to fall apart, and those with less conviction switched sides in an attempt to save themselves. A shootout would occur inside the Blenderblock, which would result in the wounding of Stauffenberg. Remmer and his forces would later storm the Blenderblock and overwhelm the conspirators. Arresting those who had lived through the initial exchange of gunfire. Fromm was released from his holding area and immediately got to work, showing off his loyalty, started an impromptu court-martialing session. He would sentence Albright, Stauffenberg, Hafden, and another officer, Korenheim, to death on the grounds of treason, while placing Beck under arrest. Beck realized the gravity of the failed plot and asked for a pistol with which to kill himself. He did try, key word, of course, being try. The round he fired would not kill him, but instead only resulted in a severe injury. He would be shot in the neck by Nazi soldiers in an attempt to put him out of his misery. Despite protests from Major Renner, Fromm ordered the immediate execution of the officers, most likely to prevent his involvement from actually leaking out. Before he could order more executions, SS troops arrived and took control, banning any further executions. Stauffenberg's final words during the execution have been told in two different fashions, depending on whether you're listening to the people who were involved in the plot who lived, we're going to talk about them later, or those who were not. But they're very similar to each other. Long live our sacred Germany, or long live the secret Germany. Stauffenberg was also the only man to accept final words prior to the executions being performed.
1: So Brad mentioned Ulbricht and Beck quite a few times, so I'll give you their background. Um, Frederick Ulbricht was born on October 4th in 1888 in Leisnig, Germany. He joined the army prior to World War I. He completed his officer of general staff training afterwards because, you know, hard to do all that when there's a war. He was then assigned to Reichswehr Ministry, Department of Foreign Armies in nineteen. 19- In 1933, he was sent to Dresden as chief of staff. By 1938, he had reached the rank of lieutenant general. In March of 1940, Obrecht headed the general army office of the Army High Command in Berlin. From 1943 and on, he headed the recruiting office of the Armed Forces High Command. However, in 1942, that's when he joined um, Operation Valkyrie or the July Plot. He was the one that had actually been given the signal to take power after the assassination. So he was gonna be like the main dude. Uh, For Ludwig Beck, he was born on June 29th in 1880 in Burbitt, Germany. He joined the Prussian army in March of 1898 as a cadet. He joined Reichwehr after World War I. In 1933, he became the head of the Truppenamt in the defense ministry and he was promoted again in 1935 To chief of army general staff up until 1938 he'd been attempting to influence hitler's foreign policy with papers memoranda and presentations so he was trying to like get rid of hitler without killing him trying to just like change his mind a little (laughs) didn't work clearly the summer of 1938 he actually called upon senior officers to resign to prevent the impending european war Um, he was unsuccessful and he actually stepped down from office shortly after He became a central figure in the military and civilian opposition. He worked alongside other conspirators, and he was the one to become head of state following the assassination of Hitler. And you talked about him failing to commit suicide.
0: I did. He um, attempted to kill himself, and it went horribly. You know, while we're on the topic of things going horribly for people, (laughs) tell me about what Treskow did.
1: Um, once he got the phone call that Hitler wasn't dead, he got in his car, drove to the northern front, and let off a hand grenade and killed himself.
0: Beautiful. In his car. Beautiful. Right on the border. The aftermath of the plot was horrible. Um, with Hitler starting what was referred to as blood law. And that was directly under the control of Heimler. These new laws would see the arrest and execution of roughly 5,000 individuals, either directly involved with the plot or involved by association only, as well as the arrest and imprisonment of the family of those involved. Several of the arrests were not even those involved in the overall plot, but were done as a way to get rid of any opposition or problem causers by the Waffen-FS. And that reach extended all the way. Fuck. Okay. Hitler was believed to let was led to believe that one of the individuals involved with the plot, Eugenio Pacelli, could be found hiding out in the Vatican City. Any idea who that could have been? Please tell me. Pope Pius XI. <laughs> now, <laughs> I just wanted a Catholic free episode.
1: It'll never happen if we keep staying in Europe. <laughs> It'll never happen.
0: There is one last few things that I want to mention. First off, that plastic explosive from earlier, the one that they actually decided to detonate, the man who made that was named Philip von Bössinger. He managed to avoid death and execution and was held in such a high regard due to his attempt on the life of Hitler that he was awarded military honors post-war in both Germany and France. He pushed for an expansion of young people into politics, took forestry classes, and even became an expert in economics. He would keep the Walther pistol given to him in the event he was close enough to shoot Hitler until his death in 2008. But he was not the last survivor. <sighs> Ewald Heinrich Hermann Conrad Oscar Ulrich, Wolf Alfred von Kleist Schmitzhain, was the last survivor of the event. He passed away at the age of of 90, just back in 2013. Following the failure of the July plot, he managed to somehow successfully cover up his entire involvement. And because they could find no evidence, when it came time for his court trial, they just dropped charges. (laughs) Towards the end of his life, von Kleist had done so much to strengthen alliances between... Everyone, that when he retired, eight NATO setting chair members were present and even saluted him. And he even received his own United States Distinguished Public Service Cross in 1991. <music>
1: And with that, we go into our, what happened on this day in history? What? That's the best way to say it.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a, boop. Historical events. What's the date? What's today? March 4th. March 4th. Okay. I've not looked at the calendar lately. <laughs> so in
1: 1789, that was the first U.S. Congress meeting. Uh, they declared the Constitution in effect, and the U.S. representatives also had a full meeting as well. In 1792, oranges were introduced to Hawaii.
0: And um, when she told me about that originally, I got oranges confused with pineapples. (laughs) Don't know how that happened? I am not aware. It's because you don't eat fruit. I eat fruit. I have a whole stack of uh, canned fruit in the kitchen. I love fruit. I don't like vegetables.
1: I only eat vegetables. Green stuff is icky. Anyway... Um, March 4th used to be the day of presidential inaugurations. So, up until 1933, with the ratification of the 20th Amendment, which made it January 20th instead of March 4th because there was too much time in between Election Day and Inauguration Day and it made things weird. So, a bunch of presidents were inaugurated. Um, you know, Washington had his second one. He actually had the shortest speech ever 133 words. Wow. I mean, it was his second inauguration. Right. I don't like he had much to say. At that point, he'd already been... He already did everything. (laughs) Uh, 1797, John Adams. 1801, Thomas Jefferson, um, who was the first to get inaugurated in Washington, D.C. 1809, James Madison. 1817, James Monroe. 1825, John Quincy Adams. 1829, Andrew Jackson. 1837, Martin Van Buren. Which, looking this up... I realized, I don't know my U.S. president. I have no idea who that man is. 1841, William Henry Harrison, who had the longest speech, which was 8,443 words. Jesus Christ. Yeah. In 1909, the U.S. prohibited interstate transportation of game birds. Why that was important, I don't know. In 1922, Nosferatu. Oh, my God. In 1922, Nosferatu, the unauthorized adaptation of Dracula by Bram Stoker, uh, premiered at the Berlin Zoological Garden in Germany. In 1924, the Happy Birthday song was published. It was written by Clayton Sonny. Are you
0: going to sing it for us in I, Spanish? No,
1: but I can sing it in Spanish and English. Look at me go. In 1936, we had the Hindenburg disaster, which could be probably an episode in itself. It probably could <laughs> And in 1966, John Lennon was quoted saying, we are more popular than Jesus when talking about the Beatles.
0: Um, You want to know what a random little stupid fun fact? Sure. I get John Lennon constantly confused with uh, the Russian oligarch by the same name. So when I first saw that, I completely forgot That he was in the Beatles, and I was like, wait. (laughs) Who John Lennon was? Lennon thought he was more popular than Jesus? (laughs) That doesn't seem right.
1: So, big day, but not really. March 4th. Be sure to stay tuned after our outro to hear about our friend Steph over on the podcast Creepy Vibes Only.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Strange History. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Strange4History for all of our latest updates.
1: It's a super fun time, especially when Brad and I both replied at the same tweet at the same time, and then we have to figure out who has to delete what they said. Or when I go off the rails and reply to someone asking, are you Team Edward or Team Jacob? <laughs> and if you want to find out what team I'm on, follow us on Twitter.
0: And uh, for the Bird in the Hand podcast, if you're listening, Alyssa did end up um, being safe. <laughs>
1: I don't have to come hang out with you guys, but I'm more than welcome and willing.
0: You can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, or pretty much wherever your ears are listening.
1: And of course, always enjoy the strange, weird things that make us, us. hello lovely humans Steph here from Creepy Vibes Only a comedy and horror podcast that covers nothing but the creepiest subjects. Tune in every Monday to get your dose of Creepy for the Week. Available on all major listening platforms and YouTube See you soon!